Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam, and we are definitely back in the saddle again, ready to share stories with you. It's so good to be back. Uh, I hated that we had to take such a long hiatus, but uh, so glad to have you joining us and listening. And to get our discussion going today, I'm really honored to have as our guest, Steve Rothberg, partner at Mercator International in Seattle, Washington. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy. Uh, Pleased to be here with you. Yes. Virtually. (laughs) Virtually here. That's right. And um, so, Steve, tell us, how are you managing during this unfathomable pandemic? Well, Betsy, I probably should first uh, explain to people listening in, you know, what Mercator International is, what we do, which will make more sense when I talk about how the pandemic has impacted our business. Sure. But our firm is a specialized management consulting firm. Our entire focus is on freight transportation and logistics. And even within that, arena, that broad arena, we are especially focused on ports and railroads and other forms of freight transportation infrastructure. We're very much involved in the development planning, capital spending analysis, marketing, operations of ports and related transportation assets. And Our business really has uh, three main client groups. We do an extensive amount of work for financial institutions that are considering to put either equity or debt finance into transportation businesses, assets, infrastructure. Uh, For example, when a year or so ago, for example, when um, OOCL was acquired by Costco, and our federal government mandated that OOCL, OOIL had to sell the Long Beach Container Terminal concession that it owned. Mm-hmm. Mercator provided commercial and operational due diligence support for the Macquarie Infrastructure and Real Assets Organization as that infrastructure management group evaluated the acquisition of the terminal for one of its uh, infrastructure funds. And we have provided uh, commercial operational due diligence support for over 35 different financial institutions over the last 10, 11 years for port and rail assets, not only across North America, but around the world. Uh, 
so that's a major part of our business. At the present time, for example, we are uh, doing some diligence work on a short line railroad. Uh, we're also evaluating uh, the commercial prospects for a multi-commodity bulk terminal in North America for an infrastructure fund. So supporting these financial institutions when they're buying or selling or refinancing yeah. these port assets in particular, but also short line railroads, uh, logistics parks, big part of our business. And then of course, we do a number of different um, studies for port authorities and terminal operators. It's another big part of our business. Uh, these would be cargo forecasts, market analysis, strategic planning, capital investment analysis, um, master planning, those sorts of uh, services. Yeah. And then on top of all that, we also do general transportation research for various government entities and railroads and uh, real estate developers. So that's what Mercator International is about. Yeah, such an interesting niche. And I'd love to know, well, first answer my question about how you're doing. And then I wanna get into how this uh, company evolved and your, how you evolved in, into this business. And, and then we'll tell some stories, but, but okay. yeah. So how are you doing? Well, um, we, aside from the fact that, you know, we're all working remotely and one of our, a couple of our members um, are having to work at their main residences, which are in other metropolitan areas mm -hmm. and not able to come here regularly, which they would normally do. Uh, our business is actually so far in 2020 been holding up relatively well. That's great. Part of that is because we've diversified a bit. Yeah. Um, we have in 2020, for example, actually in the back half of 2019 and in 2020, we started to do more work on the inland waterway network of the United States and the Great Lakes. Uh, previously, a lot of our port work in North America was focused on, you know, the, the, the blue water ports uh, on the East Coast, Gulf Coast, West Coast in the United States and Canada and Mexico and, uh, well, again, across the world. But again, from a North American perspective, uh, in the last nine months, we've done considerably more work than in the previous um, 10, 11 years on inland port development. And First of all, I didn't know anybody was investing in inland water uh, infrastructure. So that is good to hear. I didn't even well, know that was happening. So. Uh, some are. Um, yeah, the inland water, the inland port infrastructure in the country uh, is in need of new investment. But I would have to say, looking at it objectively, that most of the stakeholders in our inland waterway network would probably tell you that the greater priority is for improvements to be made to the lock and dam system mm. on the Ohio River and the upper Mississippi River and a couple mm. of the other key tributaries. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have some lock and dams on the upper Mississippi, for example, uh, you know, that are 80 plus years old and need to be replaced. 
Oh my gosh. And um, there have been many, you know, lock outages over the last 10 years. There is an Inland Waterway Trust Fund and uh, barge operators when they're buying, you know, fuel for their, for their tugboats are paying a tax that's supposed to go into these, um, you know, lock and dam improvements, but like the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund with the deep water ports, the yeah. money's typically going to the general funds uh -huh. and actual funding of specific improvements needs to be done through, you know, annual authorizations. Is so, there, is there, I, I can't think what private entities other than maybe carriers or I guess shippers would invest in that kind of thing. I mean, how would the, I mean, is there private investment? And why would- in the, lock in, in the locks and dams? No. Yeah, uh, the, so. No, the lock, the, the maintenance and improvement of our, our lock and dam network in the inland waterway system is the responsibility of the Army Corps. Okay. Uh, but of course the Army Corps can only, you know, make improvements when they're provided with you know, the funds right. for those improvements. Right. And the authorization process is, um, generally speaking, it's very time consuming. Yeah. In fact, it's so time consuming and the, uh, the process that the Army Corps has to go through to, to actually get projects approved before they get the projects funded yeah. is such that by the time the funds actually come through, you know, inflation has worked its magic so that the cost of the improvement is now considerably higher than what was anticipated when the project was first proposed. Oh, oh yeah. So that's an issue. That's yeah. an issue. In fact, Mercator uh, worked on a project uh, several years ago uh, uh, for one of the well, actually, for one of the grain growing associations or a coalition of grain growers who wanted to see if it might be possible to inject uh, private sector infrastructure funding uh, into the lock and dam network. And the portion of the network that we selected, when I say we, I mean Mercator and our clients, uh -huh. was the Illinois waterway system that connects the Mississippi River uh -huh. with Lake Michigan. Okay. That, that, that set of locks and dams and the, the waterway itself, you know, fall entirely within the state of Illinois. Now the Army Corps is still responsible for the maintenance of those locks and dams. Yeah. But our thinking was that if the state government of Illinois would be supportive of P, what we call a P3 public-private partnership concept for this part of the waterway network that maybe the Army Corps would be supportive of the P3 concept as a mechanism for injecting private sector funding yeah. to expedite the renovation of a couple of the locks and dams that were on that waterway. And so we we pursued that project. The yeah. challenge that we had was that, you know, aside from the Inland Waterway uh, Trust Fund tax on fuel, there really aren't any other charges 
that barge operators pay when their tugs and barges go through the locks. So if you can imagine, yeah, it, you know, if you're trying to convince a infrastructure fund that has a couple billion dollars to invest to allocate a billion dollars to renovate the locks and dams of the of the Illinois uh, waterway system. Yeah, where's the that revenue? Infra that infrastructure fund's going to say, "Well, what's my revenue stream going to look right, like?" Right, right, right. And and so the only answer is, well, we'll you know, uh, we don't want to force this, the the state government of Illinois to put a tax, a usage tax on users of the system. There'd be a whole array of legislative oh, sure. maneuvers that would have to make that possible, both at the state and federal level. Right. So the only other alternative really would be, you know, a, a toll, a usage fee on yeah. barges going through the lot. Well, needless to say, the the status quo is free, aside <laughs> from the, the tax. So, so you know, you then have to then have to work through. Well, what would a benefit stream look like right. to the tug and barge operators, so that if they start paying a toll for transits through these locks, uh, they'll get something from that. Other well, than a free, what about speed will it speed uh, will the uh, improvement speed up the movement of the product or anything like that or well that, that's thinking how do you well that was what that was what we analyzed what was yeah. was there a benefit stream that could be identified yeah, yeah. But, uh, anyway i didn't mean to take no, us no, down no, that rabbit, okay. rabbit hole but. i know I, I, it's hey we go where we go in our our, our podcast here. The, yeah. the question is, uh, I know that ports, you know, coastal ports are considered important to a defense. Is the intercoastal waterways, are those still considered important to defense? I mean, Army Corps of Engineers involved, but. I would presume so. I, I don't, you know, I don't profess to know um, what kind of criticality yeah. the the pentagon you know and its <laughs> national security planners put on the waterway system i think we can i think what we can say though is that you know the united states is blessed with the inland waterway system that we have yes when you look at other countries or agglomerations of countries in the world with large land masses such as what we have right um there's really no other country that has, you know, a comparable inland waterway network. I mean, China has got, you know, the Yangtze River, which is an east-west, fundamentally an east-west arterial. Yeah. You know, the Yellow River in China is really not navigable. The, the Grand Canal that links northern China and the Yangtze River yeah. is, you know, was designed hundreds of years ago. It's not really suitable for cost competitive barging today. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Australia has nothing, of course, I mean, most of the Australian landmass is a desert. Yeah. Um, Western Europe, of course, has a very extensive right. network of canals. Yeah. So 
that would be the, the probably the most comparable network. And then, uh, you know, Brazil um, is blessed with a river network that has, that, that enables a significant part of the interior of Brazil, uh, you know, access to the ocean, yeah. as well as portions of, uh, of Argentina and Paraguay, Bolivia, yeah. on the Parana Plata River system. Right. Well, it's interesting and uh, just something to think about in the future if there's any ecological or, you know, cost-benefit, you know, in the future for more use of these waterway systems. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But, but anyway. Well, you know, for, I, for a lot of, uh, I know you're based in Memphis in the middle of the country. Yes. Yes, we great are. country, and uh, you know, there's a lot north of you. There's a lot of soybean and corn producers, and right. particularly for the soybean industry, uh, their primary competition for soybean exports into Asia and particularly into China uh -huh. is Brazil, and Brazil, and to a lesser extent, you know, Bolivia and Paraguay, mm -hmm. and what we're seeing now is that the, uh, you know, the Brazilians are developing a larger portion of their interior, particularly in the state of Mato Grosso, and trying to use barges to move soybean products through tributaries of the Amazon River to ocean-going ports by the Atlantic Ocean. and, and our company, for example, has was involved in doing due diligence, oh, wow. commercial operational due diligence for a Brazilian company that has a network of barges and tugs, but also has uh, downriver and upriver grain loading terminals. And so we were evaluating the competitiveness of that network versus you know, shipping soybeans on our Mississippi, Ohio River system. And were we competitive? Was the U.S. competitive? Well, the U.S. actually on a transportation cost basis is competitive when you take into account, you know, our shorter ocean shipping distances to China. I see. Yes. Uh, and we have, of course, two broad alternative routing options. Soybean producers in the upper Midwest can not only use our inland waterway system, they can use the rail networks of the BN and the UP to get to the ocean-going ports of the Pacific Northwest, where there are several grain terminals, and then have a much shorter ocean shipping distance from there to China, particularly central and northern China, yeah. as opposed to from Brazil, where you have the grains coming to the coast after a fairly long yeah. and expensive interior transportation costs, and then moving on ships around South Africa and across the Indian Ocean and up through the South China Sea into China. So yes, we have transportation cost advantages, or I should say our soybean producers do, but they also have higher production costs. Right, right. So I would imagine the price of the 
soybean itself is cheaper from Brazil, but well, it's very well. Of course, what's relevant is the landed costs, as you know. Yeah. Yes. And it's very competitive. Yeah. It's very competitive. Interesting. Uh, it just made me think about when you're talking about the waterway system in South America. What about mining? Is that something that goes? Uh, I don't know if the mines in Bolivia and Brazil are located near waterways. Well, in fact, uh, Rio Tinto has a. I think it's Rio Tinto. No, excuse me. It's. Uh, uh, Rio Doce, uh, CVRD, has a large iron ore mine that mm -hmm. is up the Parana Plata River system in Brazil, mm -hmm. but after the river goes through Argentina and Paraguay mm -hmm. and a little slice of Bolivia to get back into Brazil. So it's a pretty long distance up the river. It's, uh. it's, it's, it's as if there were an iron ore mine somewhere south of Minneapolis. And the iron ore is moving, you know, by barge all the way down to New Orleans. Yeah. That's how far it is. Oh, that's pretty far, yeah. Have yeah. you been, have you traveled in that area? Have you been on the rivers down there? And uh, I haven't been on the rivers. I mean, I've traveled uh, yeah. down to those countries. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, we, you know, our firm does get involved in, yeah a lot of these different types of projects. And that's why, back to your original question, uh, so far, knock on wood, you know, our business has been holding its own. We've been, as I said, doing more work on inland waterways and inland ports. We've been working on short line railroad acquisitions. And of course, we continue to do work on evaluating port transactions and port strategies. Yes. Um, so, well, I guess uh, what I'm learning about your business and what sounds so interesting is that you seem to get a macroeconomic view of, of international trade in the world by dealing with infrastructure. I mean, that's pretty basic stuff for who is, uh, whose economies are, have weaknesses and whose economies have strengths. Uh, how would you... I don't know if this, how to put this question, but let's just compare China and the U.S. Mm -hmm. At a very basic level, do we have a lot of advantages infrastructure-wise versus China? Well, that's a that's a broad question. Um, that's the way I think, man. <laughs> yeah. Here's what I would say we probably had some advantages over China with regard to our rail freight infrastructure. So I would say that the, when we look at the class one rail network in the United States, it's, it's the best rail freight network in the world. Right. Um, now, the Chinese have invested heavily in their rail network, mm -hmm. but a considerable portion of the capacity of that rail network is consumed by passenger trains. Whereas in our rail network, you know, the Amtrak trains are a scooch yeah. compared yeah. to you know, freight train activity right. you know, outside of the Northeast Corridor. But, you know, if you were to, you know, ride a freight train 
yeah. on the Burlington Northern Rail Line between Chicago and Seattle, you know, you would see one train a day in each direction that's an Amtrak train. Right. Whereas you would see, you could see 30 okay. trains a day that are, you know, coal trains or intermodal trains, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So yeah, it's very different. It's very different. We don't really have a. Yeah. So I would say that we have an advantage in our rail freight network, mm -hmm. our rail freight infrastructure. We have an advantage in our inland waterway infrastructure, mm -hmm. notwithstanding the fact that many of the components of it, as I said earlier, are old and need to be repaired or replaced or both. Um, our highway network, you know, yeah. I wouldn't say that our highway network is, uh, well, our highway network is probably superior to China's. But again, that could also be because we have 25%, 30% of the population. Right. But Actually, 25, uh, I think 25. everybody can agree that our road infrastructure, like bridges and stuff, I mean, there's no question that we need yeah. to invest in that stuff. Well, we do. Okay. Now, one area, we're in an area where we fall behind China is, is our deep water port infrastructure. I was going to ask you about that. I remember, uh, like, visiting the port of Rotterdam uh, years ago, and I was just, you know, everything was, so much was mechanized, and so it seems that, I don't know how far we've gotten as far as our ports being as mechanized robotics and all that kind of thing. Uh, kind of where do we stand in, in that role you were about to say regarding deep water ports? Well, we can think about the quality of our port infrastructure from a few different parameters. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one, which is how automated are they? That's one, that's, you know, that's one parameter. But there are other parameters that need to be taken into account, such as uh, what is the maximum size of ship that you know, our main ports can safely accommodate. Right. So the port of Rotterdam you know, has navigation channels and port facilities that yeah. can handle the largest container ships that are operating. Yes. It also has some um, terminals for bulk cargoes, you know, liquid yeah. bulk and dry bulk. Right. That again can handle uh, cape size and super cape size ships. Yeah. Very few of our ports have those capabilities. In fact, we don't have a container terminal in North America, in the United States or Canada, that can really efficiently handle these 20, 22,000, 23,000 TEU ships that have been coming on stream in the last two years. Wow. But China has many term ports and terminals that can handle those ships. Oh, wow. And so, so does Northern Europe. So we're a bit behind in that area, although although the counter argument to that is that, well, going forward, uh, 
what's going to be more important than minimizing the unit slot cost on a ship will be uh, minimizing your total inventory costs. And if you, for example, can operate three vessel deployments a week from a group of ports in Asia, mm -hmm. let's say a group of ports on the U.S. West Coast or on the U.S. East Coast. Yeah. And if your choice is I'll operate one deployment with 24,000 or 23,000 TEU ships. Yeah. Or I'll operate three with 8,000 TEU ships. I will actually have a much more fluid and responsive logistics network with the higher frequency operation. My ocean, my ocean transportation cost will be higher with the additional frequency, but I'll be flowing containers through the marine terminal much more rapidly because instead of having one ship once a week, you know, dump 12,000, 13,000 containers and load back a similar number, which will take five, six days or more. Right, right. I have a ship coming in every other day, you know, and loading and reloading and flushing and reflushing, so to speak. And the system is just becomes more fluid. Well, and it's also more it's also more responsive because if you missed if your container missed the ship in Qingdao, well there's one two and a half days later as opposed to one seven days later. Right, right. You know, so all that, that higher frequency, I think the ocean carriers for the last 10 years or more, more actually, became overly consumed with minimizing or maximizing economies of scale. Right. Trying, trying to operate the biggest ship possible that you could fill and let me just say, for our listeners, Steve and I have known each other for 34 years, and we uh, knew each other, uh, we were both working for United States Lines, and yeah. that was the big, you know, growth in that company, and then its fall as well, was building these super Panamax ships and i and and that's i guess one of the last questions i want to ask you is big still better and you kind of you seem to be uh alluding to that that has that idea may not be what is the future of the ocean shipping is big still better or is it something smaller and more fluid like you kind of i i think that um the ocean carriers have recognized that big is not necessarily better. Mm -hmm. They now have these 20, 24,000 TU ships being delivered that can only be operated in one lane between Asia and North Europe. And the Asia North Europe market, of course, has collapsed. Right. Because oh, of the no. pandemic. And well, most other markets have been severely impacted as well. Right. But even if, even if or when these 
liner trades return to the volume levels of say 2019, ocean carriers are realizing that the inflexibility of the 20,000 TEU ship Which as is compared enormous. to- the, That's yeah. enormous. <laughs> yeah, the, the inflexibility yeah. has a cost that wasn't fully recognized by the people who right. you know, launched the initiative to build and deploy those ships. And are there a lot of those ships that have not even been delivered or? Yes, there are. Oh, sure. that's well, bad. That's Hyundai, Hyundai just took delivery of uh, the first of, I think, 10, 24,000 TEU ships. Wow, I bet that. Yeah. Ooh, I'm glad I didn't invest in that. <laughs> yeah. Of course, they're able to do they're able to do that courtesy of the financial support of the Korean government. Yeah, that's a big. Because Hyundai hasn't made operating earnings for several years now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, we who knows? They may have the last laugh, but that makes sense what you're what you're saying. So, well, Steve, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. There's so many more things we could have talked about. I didn't even. Well, we can do this again. Your me and your background and your experience, which is broad, but everybody can tell from our conversation, you're a really smart guy. And that's why I like talking <laughs> to you. So thank you so much. Um, I just want to say to our listeners uh, that we'd love to get this conversation going about this episode and you know, more general discussions about exporting and the pandemic and what what's happening in your businesses. And, and uh, you know, we just, we need to stay connected. So, you know, reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com and I'll uh, post your questions and comments. We're also on Twitter. And uh, we just want to grow this community of exporters. Steve, I want to really thank you so much for being a guest today. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It was my pleasure, truly. All right. Well, take care and take care of You everybody. too. Thank Stay you. Stay healthy. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting.